0: Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Three guests this week, three really interesting conversations. First off, Frank Isola, the longtime and acclaimed Daily News sports writer who focused on the NBA. Frank is incredibly honest and provides a lot of candor on what it was like to get the call the other day where he had been laid off from that paper after 25 years. Trunk coming in and essentially... Uh, sticking the knife in the in the Daily News. So Frank Isola on um, what that what it, what it's been like for him, and we also get into a little bit of basketball, including uh, Kawhi Leonard, and maybe why Carmelo Anthony is misunderstood. After that, it's Clifton Brown who wrote a uh, book on Irv Cross, the pioneering African American sports analyst at CBS. That book is *Burying the Cross: My Inspiring Journey from Poverty to the NFL and Sports Television*. And so Clifton talks about Irv Cross, one of the interesting figures in sports broadcasting history. And we finish up with Ben Ryder, senior writer at Sports Illustrated, my former colleague. He is the author of Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All. And rather than talk about the Astros in our conversation, we talk about how one goes uh, and writes a book proposal and how you um, how you have to learn to promote a book, which is not something they teach in journalism school. So Frank Isola, Clifton Brown, and Ben Ryder all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, we bring in Frank Isola to start. NBA fans are very familiar with Frank Isola. He's one of the uh, most respected national NBA voices that's out there, worked at the Daily News for 25 years. He is the co-host with Brian Scalabrini on Sirius XM NBA radio. First of all, I have to ask Frank if he, if, if he, he is he the host and maybe Scott Breen is sort of a little lesser than co-host or is it really a true co-host, co-host thing? But Frank is the Sirius XM NBA, he's on Sirius XM NBA radio starting lineup. And of course, if you're an ESPN fan, you have seen uh, Frank on uh, Around the Horn, Pardon the Interruption. I like to call that uh, Frank's Kids College Fund, basically. <laughs> is, is how I like to refer to that. And Frank Isola, is kind enough to join us on what has been obviously a, um, a shitty and surreal week for him as after 25 years, as most of you have read, um, Tronk came in and basically cut half his newsroom, including Frank. Hey, Frank, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on the Sports Media Podcast.
1: Well, Richard, uh, thanks for having me. Number one, you're absolutely right about uh, PTI and Around the Horn in terms of my kids' college fund. And as for Brian Scalabrini, when he had Jason Kidd in New Jersey, Jason Kidd playing so well, got Brian Scalabrini, about a $14 million contract. He was the point guard, and on this station, I'm not going to be able to get him a $14 million contract, but I am definitely the lead host. To him on this station, I'm basically Jason <laughs> Kidd.
0: Nice. Nice. <laughs> um... And that is a, uh, I actually, I really have, especially with the Kawhi stuff, given that I'm living in Toronto now, I, I've, I've been listening to SiriusXM NBA radio so much over the last two weeks. It's actually really good. I love David Griffin, and I love uh, your morning show with you and Scal. All right. First off, before we get to that, Frank, um, can you, um, as specific and as deep as you want to go, can you take us into how you learned that you were one of the people being let go by Tronk this week
1: well you know if you go back to a couple of years ago uh, when they got rid of a lot of people including uh, terry thompson who was a sports editor you know you kind of felt like something was going to happen maybe at some point uh you know two septembers ago they were telling people we need people to take a buyout if you don't take if you get the buyout it'll be a, you'll get a six-month severance but i kept thinking nah, you know what i'm not going to take it. i think the paper will last at least you know, another two, three, four, five years probably. So I didn't take it. But when Gary Myers, who, as you know, longtime NFL writer, you know, nationally known, he got let go, um, it was right at the end of March, early April. And then I started thinking, you know, I do the NBA, John Harper does baseball. I said, you know, we're moving up the, the ladder here, so to speak, or actually getting closer to the. Probably the window, that's probably a better way to put it, I'm getting about ready to be tossed out because by the time when Monday rolled around, I was the fourth uh, longest tenured person in the sports department. So you know yeah. if you're if around that much longer, you probably make more, not that I make a making a ton of money, but you're not making a lot more. Or you're making more than a lot of the other employees. So I just, I just had a weird feeling. I never once, any time that they've had cutbacks or anything like that, I've never felt like I was going to be one of the person uh, people let go. And it wasn't any sense of arrogance that I felt. Well, they can't, the paper won't survive without me. It, it wasn't that. I just never. It was like the vibe I was getting. But I just had a feeling. And over the weekend, you know, I told my wife. I said, I think I'm going to get let go. On Monday, I told a couple other people they didn't believe it, but in my heart of hearts I knew it. And here's the weird thing, Richard, on Monday, I'm doing my radio show. And they're having a meeting at The Daily News at nine o'clock in the morning, and at nine o'clock, I get a, you know, a lot of people are texting me that we're at the meeting, and they're saying they're letting almost everybody go, and, and things like that. So we actually started talking about it on the radio. And then we actually had the, uh, the media writer for The New York Post, Kieran Kelly. Who had said that I was going around telling people that I'm exiting, which I really never said. I mean, unless my wife was the source of that story, I don't know where he would have gotten that from. So we kind of had a little bit of fun with him and we got off the air, uh, you know, at about 10 o'clock with me saying, you know, I I was trying to be lighthearted about it. I wasn't going to be dead serious about it because, you know, we're trying to entertain an audience. And I said, you know, there's a good chance by tomorrow morning I I won't, uh, I'll only have three, uh, I'll only have two jobs, not three and at 10:30 I you know I called my boss up and he said that I was on the list which I would have hoped that they would they would have called me so it was really me calling my office and finding out that you know after 25 years I was done
0: jeez all right so there's a couple of, first of all uh, unbelievable that you don't get a call that you have to call to find out about being uh laid off did you um I mean I know you a little bit so obviously I feel like you you always have a uh a pretty good attitude about things in journalism and stuff. But when you have that conversation with your wife, I mean, how sobering does it get? Do you start thinking, like, all right, I got to, you know, here's my plan. I'm going to give it a couple months to figure out what our next step is. Or or are you sort of really lighthearted and like, hey, you know what? Paper's been teetering for a while. I guess it's just my time.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, she was uh, uh, a little bit shocked. And I think on that Monday— You know, I I left. I went into the city and I did uh, around the horn. And my, you know, a lot of people were texting me. A lot of people were calling me. It was it was overwhelming at times, especially trying to focus on doing a television show. And when I got home, you know, my son just graduated from Northwestern, so he's home. And I've never seen him kind of act that way. I could tell that he was like, I don't know if the right word is nervous or like maybe a little scared, but he just like looked and was, you know, he was acting a little bit differently. The same thing with my daughter, because remember, you know, me working at the Daily News. You know, I started working there before they were born, so that's all right. they've known. They've known that you know, during the winter, when I'm on the Nick Beat, I was gone a lot covering games, you know, especially during the middle of the week, and during the summer, that's when things eased up. Because you know, the, the, the summer for the NBA could be somewhat crazy, but nothing like the last couple of years. If you remember, there was a year where the NBA had, you could recruit guys on July 1st, but you officially couldn't sign them until July 30th. That was a long month waiting for that day to come when everything became official. But really, for the most part, it was almost like a teaching job where you worked a lot between October and June, and then really July, August, and of course, September as well. You, you would kind of have off. So they, everything was going to be different for them. But yeah, my wife uh, was pretty nervous. And then just in terms of getting called about it, you know, I, I go back to almost a year to the day uh, you know, I was over at Red Bull Arena. I was watching Barcelona practice <laughs> on the field, and that was the day that the Kyrie Irving story came out. So, you know, so I was supposed to be off that day, and, you know, my boss called me and asked me if I could write something, and I did. So if you can call me to tell me to write something on my day off, I think I probably should have gotten a call. And I, honestly, after 25 years, I would, have think, I, I would have hoped that somebody could have called me even before anything came down maybe over the weekend and just said, Hey, you know, I know this is tough. Keep it to yourself, which I would have, you know, I think after 25 years, I've maybe, uh, earned that, but you know, that that's the way it goes sometimes.
0: Jeez. All right. So I want to, so if I can ask, who is the person, who's the sports editor that you're calling at the daily news to find out if you have a job there still?
1: That was, uh, Eric Barrow. I just wanted to know the deal. I just didn't want to drive, you know, into the city and, uh, you know, not know. I, you know, my thing was, when is this going to happen? They've obviously, they have this list of people. Why aren't we being called? Right. And you know, the meeting took place at nine o'clock, so that's ninety minutes into it. And I had to go on a conference call at ten thirty. So I said, I, I want to find out now, and that's why I called up.
0: Does there and how does Eric Barrow, if I can ask, how does he tell you? Does he say, you know, I'm sorry, you're on this list. Uh, here's the other people on this list, and you know, here's what you got to do next. How does it? How does it? Like, how does it specifically happen?
1: Yeah, it, it, the whole thing is kind of strange because, you know, number one, I've never had to fire anybody before. So I don't know what it's like to be in that position. I can only imagine, you know, that maybe some people enjoy it. I would imagine that most people with a heart don't enjoy it. So I don't envy anybody that has to be in that position. Plus, I've never been in that position before that I've been fired or laid off. So it definitely was a, a bit new for me. But I said, what's the deal? And, he, you know, he sounded – nervous when he told me. I don't know, maybe he thought that I was going to erupt on the phone and start screaming, but then I just asked him who was there. You know, well, I said, well, who are the people staying? And he told me the list and you know, for some of the people I was pretty happy, especially Stefan Bondi, who's done the Nick Beat for the last two years, whose father, was it two or three years ago, got laid off by the Daily News. Stefan Bondi has a a son in high school, a daughter who's in middle school. He and I have become very close over the past couple of years. I think he does a great job. I think he's a very good reporter. I think he's a very good writer. He, um, you know, he's got good instincts. He's not afraid to be critical. I think he's got good, strong opinions. And as I told him, and when I spoke to him, I could, I, when I spoke to Stephen Bondi, you know, I could tell that he was like a little bummed out. He felt a little awkward. But I told him, I said, to be honest with you, Steph, I would have felt. Weird. If they had kept me and got rid of you, just because a, I'm at a different place in my life, and you really have done the bulk of the work the last couple of years. Like they, you know, you deserve to stay. So I was, I was happy that uh, Stefan Bondi was one of the people on the list. But the conversation I had with my sports editor was actually, it was pretty short and brief. Like I, didn't, you know, what was I going to do? I was going to start debating and trying to sell myself and why me and you, are you crazy and start cursing. What, what good? Was that, uh, that going to do me? So the conversation was, yeah. uh, was very brief. When I got off the phone, I just uh, I told my wife. She was like a bit stunned. My, my kids who were both home were a bit stunned, and that uh, basically was it.
0: Yeah, in terms of Stefan Bondi, you know, there is such a thing as survivor's guilt. I mean, you know, you're obviously happy you have a job, but you're now working without your longtime colleagues. And for him in particular, I'm sure, you know, he's a smart guy. You look around, like, who are you even working for? And what yeah. is this place uh, now? And we'll get into that a little bit. Does the Daily News, uh, or does a management person, or does somebody eventually let you know? Here's how uh, you know we're going to give you severance until this date. We need you to come in and give your laptop. I mean, does that does, have those conversations happened yet, or is Tronk so back bass you know back ass uh, <laughs> that they haven't even done that yet?
1: Well, here's the crazy thing: as we speak right now, I did get a call um, from a woman in human resources. Uh, on that day, and she left a message for me and I called back <laughs> later on in the afternoon that day that which would be I guess be Monday. I called maybe five times on Tuesday. I think I called three times yesterday, and I've yet to speak to this person, so technically, no one from human resources has told me <laughs> that uh, that I'm no longer there, nor have they told me what the next process will be so that that's also a little bizarre as well that they haven't really formally Told me, And, you know, like you said, with a, a computer or, you know, any kind of severance or things like that. So that's that that has made the whole thing even like a little bit more surreal.
0: I mean, I don't even at this point, I've sort of said my piece on trunk online. I don't even know where else to go at this point. It just it, for everything. All right. So here's what I want to get to, Frank. We people who have followed the Daily News know that the, the paper had been bleeding money for a long time. It was eventually sold. For whatever that crazy price was a dollar, and it seemed very clear this is what Tronk does. they buy these assets that have been really um pumped uh, bashed down basically, and they're you know they try to use the the name of the paper for as long as they can with very cheap generally speaking non-union labor, and they try to get as much profit as they can out of it before it it eventually becomes um it be, be, before it folds or just becomes like nothing more than a in a content farm. During your 25 years of the news, you started the Daily News when the the city was um, newspaper crazy. All the uh, you know everybody was buying three papers a day. The News and the Post were going at it, and slowly but surely, newspapers really started taking hits. You know, Craigslist. However, you know many things you want to sort of point to newspapers not going into digital quick enough. Was there a point, Frank, during your years at the Daily News when it felt different? when you started thinking to yourself, you know, once upon a time, like that was a lifetime job you had, but maybe at a certain point you're like, you know what, eventually this is going to end.
1: Yeah, maybe I thought for me, but I don't, I don't think uh, for newspapers it, it was going to, maybe I think a little bit differently now. But, you know, I go all the way back to, you know, when I worked at the New York Post as a college intern, you know, I'm working there and, you know, Michael Kay is covering the Yankees and Bob Clappish is covering the Mets. And, you know, you just had, you know, all these different people working. there. when I went to the Daily News – in uh, February of 95, uh, I'm sorry, February of 94, and you had guys like, um, you know, Mike McEllary was working at the front of the paper, and he became obviously a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. You know, they made two Broadway plays of it. One was an off-Broadway play by Dan Cloris, the filmmaker, and the other one, Nora Ephron, turned into Lucky Man the one that uh, Tom Hanks starred in. And you had Jim Dwyer, who was a big-time guy. Then, you know, in sports, you had all these big names, you know, including Mike Lupica. So it was, I mean, it was just a different, different time. Mark Kriegel was a young columnist back then. Ian Ian O'Connor was was starting. I mean, we had so many great people. I mean, there was a time, if you go back to, I went to the Olympics in Greece in 2004, and I could have sworn, I think with photographers, we had seven people. And I remember uh, Philip Bondi and Wayne Coffey, Saying like, yeah, we could really use like a couple more people. You know, the times probably had twenty, twenty-five, but it was just interesting thinking that we we had either seven or eight people there, and then the last Olympics in Brazil, we didn't have anybody. That t- that tells you how dramatic uh, how dramatic things had kind of turned around. But I really think it's it's probably been the last three years where I figured my time was coming, just because of the people that they were getting rid of, and once my seniority went up, I figured, well, I got to be getting closer to the chopping block. And it, like I said, not because I was making a crazy load of money, but I was certainly making more than, you know, if they're hiring kids out of college. So I would think the last three years, I kind of saw this day coming. I didn't know when it was going to come, but, uh, I, I saw it coming and Monday was the day.
0: How will, how do you think New York will be impacted by essentially now only having one paper one paper in New York, not including Newsday, of course, one paper, let's say, covering the... Am I right about this? The Times doesn't cover the Knicks. Nope. The Daily News, uh, or maybe Stefan will cover the Knicks, but I, how do you, on a larger question, how is this going to impact New York sports? The fact that the Daily News now, you know, which has chronicled New York for 90-something years, essentially has whatever, it has nine people left in its sports department. Yeah, and...
1: You know, if you go back to, I think the tabloid wars in a lot of ways are over now. And I think, you know, clearly the yep. Post.
0: Murdoch won. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah he, he absolutely won. And I and to be fair, I think the New York Post really over the last 10 years, I think kind of the tone of their coverage has changed. And I I really think for the last few years they've put out a, a pretty good product. And they have a lot of people working there. I'd say, like, you know, if you look at the New York Post and you read it, it they act like it's 1985. You look at the Daily News with, like, you know, very few pages, it looks like it's the year 2045, like right at the end of newspapers. The post operates like the newspapers are still going strong, and to their credit, it's been very good. Like if you go back to early 2000s, really at the height of the Yankee Red Sox, that run that the two teams had, which, you know, every time they – think about this, Richard. When the Yankees would play the Red Sox, the Daily News would send Roger Rubin, who was laid off, I think, three years ago – Roger Rubin would go with the Red Sox to their series before they came and played the Yankees or before the Yankees (laughs) would play them. like, you know, Terry Francona almost thought of Roger Rubin as like a Red Sox beat writer. That's how often he was around. So, and then when those two teams would play, you know, we would a lot of times have eight, nine people there. I spoke to Leon Carter, who was a sports editor back then. And, you know, so as of the other day, there were nine people left in the sports section. We used to send nine people to a Yankees-Red Sox regular season game. I'm not talking about playoffs. I'm talking about regular season games we would send them to. Leon Carter reminded me during the Subway Series, and I got to be part of that. I'm talking about when they played for the World Series back in, what year was that, 2000, right? Am I getting the years right. messed up? He said that every, you know, the nights of those uh, seven games, we had 32 pages. And as he said, probably between Monday and Friday, they're probably putting out a total of 32 sports pages. That's how that's how much things have changed at the Daily News, and I think the competition for both sides, you know, made both papers aggressive, and I think that's it's kind of been that way. At the Post, I'm not saying they don't they're not going to continue to be aggressive, but you can't tell me that uh, you know it's it's not going to feel a little bit differently without you know one less main competitor. I think Joel Sherman had a pretty good tweet about that, how you like competing against your competition, you don't want to see them die. And in a lot of ways, that's what it kind of feels like right now.
0: Frank, one of the things that I saw, at least from some pockets of conservative media and certainly some conservative people online, was this notion that the Daily News was hurt by its front page going very, very hard against Donald Trump and making it very clear what its POV. You know, you can sort of try to have a rational conversation and say the Daily News has issues, Were existed long before Donald Trump, and the paper, by the way, has endorsed Republican presidential candidates multiple times, uh, from Ronald Reagan to both Bushes. So I feel like that's a little bit of a canard. That said, I think it's worth asking somebody who worked there like you um, and had in the sports department, it, it was apolitical, but you know your front page sort of took a POV. Do you think that had anything to do with the Daily News losing any kind of readership in the city because it was so it was leaning so hard one way against the current president.
1: Yeah, I, there was definitely some resentment toward that. But like you you mentioned, I think you know the problems that the paper were, were having, you know, came long before the presidential election. But there's no doubt when you read the paper, you know, you, you know every day. The front pages, and what I always thought was interesting about it—not that we—they're allowed to decide whoever they want to support, but I just found that it was interesting that he was like a Queens guy. I never felt like we got into that part of the story, you know, like where he was from and and what he was about. You know, we were just putting together, you know, these front pages which were having like a big impact, and you know, on all those morning political shows, they were constantly holding up the front page. But I, I definitely sensed some resentment among readers, you know, and I, and I did read a lot of stuff after what happened on Monday. And, you know, after Michael Kay went on that rant on um, on his radio show on ESPN New York, where, you know, he kind of came in a, to the defense of the sports department. And A lot of people who responded on Twitter to what he was saying, they kept pointing to the political stuff. Well, that really has nothing to do with the sports department. Exactly. You know, we're still, you know, yeah. still kind of covering sports. So if that, if that was your issue with the front of the paper, I understand that. But I also think... And I always felt this way at the Post and at the Daily News. The sports department kind of runs the paper in a lot of ways. You know, in the front of the paper, you're going to they, if they're doing the right thing, they're covering City Hall. You're covering the police and things like that. Yeah, they're always going to have incredible local coverage of crime and of politics. And then, of course, you're going to have the gossip. But the sports drives the paper. And I felt for a while there, we probably weren't paying enough attention to sports at the Daily News, and it was probably too much about the president. And the front page. And, you know, I, I kind of felt that that might have hurt sports a little bit.
0: That's interesting. I appreciate that uh, answer. For you, um, what, what has it been like? What kind of conditions have you been working under in the last couple of years? Have you uh, personally seen, let's say, like uh, travel budgets cut? Have you been told to cut back on any kind of expenditures? I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is did you feel individually, did you feel that the, um, did it get down to you that the paper was in economic trouble?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, at the World Series, we didn't have uh, anybody there. And then this year at the NBA playoffs, or really for the last couple of years, uh, you know, we were only sending one person, which was fine. But this year, you know, a serious... Uh, XMNBA Radio, they always like having me at the finals to do a couple of shows. And because we're a morning show, they'd rather have us be in the um, East Coast City or the Eastern Conference City, I should say. So I was going to go to games three, four, and six. And I told my office, I said, hey, listen, why don't you send um, Stefan Bondi to games one and two? I'm going to games three and four. I could write, and it's not going to cost the paper a dime. They're not going to have to pay for air, they're not gonna have to pay for a hotel, they're not gonna have to pay for any other expenses. So really we're gonna be getting four games for just the price of going to two games in Oakland and they they just couldn't swing it. And I you know, That's I just nice. thought it was bad. It's the NBA finals. And the one thing about uh, you know, the the difference between the NBA and the other sports, you know, once you get to the finals, it's always, you know, the superstars playing and if LeBron's gonna be in it, people in New York love reading about LeBron and, you know, they love Kevin Durant and usually with the NBA we stick to writing about the stars. So I, I, that kind of bothered me a little bit. I was surprised that we we wouldn't even pay just for the two games. And guess what? We wouldn't have paid for me to go to Cleveland for games three and four. And it, you know, and it worked out because the series uh, ended there in Cleveland. I mean, there was a time, Richard, where we were sending sometimes three people to the NBA Finals. At the height of it in the '90s, you know, uh, my first Finals was covering Michael Jordan's uh, the first of his last three, if that makes sense, from '96, '97, and '98. And at the time, you're you're kind of smart enough to understand that you're really covering Babe Ruth of basketball. Like, you know that, like, as you're going through it, you know that Michael Jordan is a big deal. And we covered it like that. Like, in New York back then, there were two things that everybody followed in New York. It was the Knicks and Michael Jordan. And so when we went to the NBA Finals, we wrote about Michael Jordan every day. I'll I'll always think my years covering uh, basketball for the Daily News, and, of course, Kobe, and LeBron fit in this category, but not so much as Michael Jordan. Like any time we were at an All Star game, we wrote about Michael Jordan. And all we used to follow the Bulls, even if the Knicks weren't playing, we went to the Bulls uh, playoff series. That's how big of a deal Michael Jordan was, and that's how that's what the budget was like back then, because they we yeah. knew that the readers had this insatiable appetite to read about this, you know, once in a lifetime player and it was it was well worth it. I think it was smart for the paper and I was lucky enough to be at a lot of these games and I always thought of it as a privilege. It was amazing being there.
0: Frank, I I, I, I found myself unfortunately I've asked this too many times and not necessarily just on this podcast, but just to friends in the business, but you know, you put out a note that says you're no longer at the Daily News and you get back obviously this incredible feedback people saying, you know, it sucks, decision was bad, et cetera, et cetera. Is it, it, it has to be so weird, though, right? It's almost like being at your own funeral in a way. What was yeah, that, that day that. like on social media where you are see it's – you know, I'm sure it's going to happen to me one day, too. It has to be surreal. Oh, it, it absolutely is that. And, you know, a
1: couple of people have said exactly what you've said, how it's like living through your own funeral. And the people that have reached out, it's been amazing, How many people, but first of all, you get family members reaching out to you, making sure that you're okay. And then you get all these people in the business and there's people that you forgot about that, you know, that you had a connection with. And, you know, so many people were so nice with some of the things uh, that they said. It got emotionally. I was walking back from uh, around the horn. I always park my car near the Lincoln Tunnel. There's an NYP spot the spots over there. So I figured, you know what, I'm not going to fight with traffic in New York. So I always take like a pretty long walk, even in the rain, which sometimes stinks and in the cold. But actually, like there was one point because I was done with the show. and I looked at my phone and there were all these messages and I got kind of choked up for a moment just uh, just reading them because it was amazing what all the people were saying. And I kept thinking, man, I'm going to have to start being really nice to people. Like, I don't know if I'm going to be allowed to be that miserable anymore because I can't believe all the nice things people were saying. We had a guy The problem, you know, it's weird, and a lot of people who reach out to me, I obviously know, and some of the things that they said really meant a lot to me. But we were on radio the next day, which would be Tuesday, and I, you know, I kind of opened the show by telling people, "Hey, what we talked about yesterday is true." You know, I, I ended up losing. My job at the Daily News, and you know, I talked about it for a minute. I said, but, you know, I don't want to turn the show into, you know, everyone, you know, feeling sorry for me. We're here to talk about basketball, and you know, it, there was something going on with Kawhi Leonard and DeMar DeRozan even on Tuesday, so I wanted to talk about that. But a couple of people called up, and there was a guy Dominic who lives in North Carolina. He's from New York. He was in the military, and we had been talking. I mentioned something about looking at my Marriott account and how many nights I've spent on the road, which is over a thousand. I've, you know, and I said that's. I basically spent three years, a total of three years away from my family. And I said that they, in the long run, they probably enjoyed it that I was gone for that long. <laughs> but I said it's just a unique thing, and that's part of the job. And obviously, Brian is talking about being a player and what he does now and the time you spend away and being on the road. And a guy called up. He said, Hey, I know exactly what you guys are talking about. He said, I spent a lot of time away too. Difference is I'm not staying in the nice hotels like you guys are. I was in the military. And he said, When he was in the military his mother used to send him copies of the daily news because he'd read the sports section and uh, it would remind him of new york and he would read about and he would read uh, my story I'm actually getting a little choked up now thinking about it yeah, but that that's that amazing. like really meant something to me you know like yeah, that's, listen all your that's friends great. in the business and it means a lot what they say, but this is just, you know, like a stranger. And that's what the Daily News is, and that's what working for a newspaper is about. You're, you know, you're covering something like basketball, and you're covering the Knicks, and it's not the end of the world. It's for entertainment. And here's a guy who's in the military, and what makes him feel the connection to home is reading his newspaper from home. And he said that he would read me, and that really, uh, that really meant a lot.
0: Yeah, that's why you get into the business. I mean, it's not yeah. to be for some people, I'm sure it's to be famous or to be on ESPN, but ultimately, most of the people, I think both of us know, you get in because you want to make a connection with somebody in a community. You want people to read what you and have it, you want what you write to have an impact on someone's life. Uh, you know, and that's that's a really good testimony yeah. and, to and, um, yeah, yeah. your story.
1: And and, you, and as you know, Richard, you know, when I started the business, I think about this, there's no cell phones. There's no internet, so it was just different. You know everyone was getting their information from the newspaper, so the job had a little bit more cachet and the status right. and, it, and it was just great like I you know I talked to Barbara Barker about it, you know Mike Wise, we were all on the Nick Beat together very early on Steve Popper, and you know we came along at a time when you know Patrick Ewing was on the team, and Charles Oakley and Derek Harper and Larry Johnson, Jeff van gundy had just become the coach, and he was around the you know, a little bit older than us, but we were all around the same age. We were just very fortunate because it was like a mature group of guys that could be difficult to deal with, just in terms of not every day they were going to be so media-friendly, which was fine. But it was a very good working environment. Every game that they played mattered because when they entered a the season, everyone thought they, they had a chance to win a championship. And Jeff was very good, as, you've, as everyone has seen over the years. What the rest of the country has seen from Jeff, we saw that at an early stage he was very much aware of the media's job he would debate us on stories he i thought he made us a lot smarter and a lot better at our jobs because he would really come after us and question why we do stuff and he would he would love sitting there after practice his line would be all right turn your recorders off and then he would start talking about what we wrote and why you should look at it this way. And it was just, it was very educational and it was just a different kind of job. And that's not to say that it, it's still not a good job, but with more media, there became more reporters and it really came, became more of an access game. I, I, I think the business today is more about making sure that you have access to people as opposed to really reporting about them. I, I think that's the one major change so far.
0: Did Jeff reach out to you? Have you heard from him?
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jeff Jeff's a good guy. Jeff's uh, Jeff's funny. The way Jeff is on TV and stuff, he's uh, he's a yeah. Funny it's not easy. He's a, a little, he's, uh, he's really good.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of a of a shtick. It's a good shtick, though.
1: No, um, no, he's no. Ha- I, I get that, but he's also you know the one thing I always say about Jeff, and it was uh, always a great story. And he got accepted to Yale and he attended Yale for a uh, one semester. So he's a very bright guy. Then he has the great story. You know, when he was at Yale. Um, he was in a class with Jodie Foster, and all of a sudden, one day, the Secret Service came running into the class, and that was because the president had been shot, and then, of course, John Hinckley said he did it to impress Jodie Foster. So he was actually at Yale when Jodie Foster was there.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I'm saying, like, the there's the on-air shtick, but I, behind the scenes, I, Van, Van Gundy's a very good guy. Actually, there's a lot of things that he's done that I think people don't know about that— uh, um, you know, people would be impressed by, including his support of the WNBA and some uh, and some other stuff. Oh, I, I absolutely. It like,
1: yeah. Just the point, like it was just that it was very, you know, he was trying to make it as a coach at the same time that we were all kind of trying to yeah. make a name for ourselves in the business. It was just interesting the way it went. And it was also really cool covering Patrick Ewing because you were covering a superstar player and the challenges of that because Patrick was a nice guy, but Patrick wasn't going to be very open with you in the media. And I'll never forget, you know, my second year on the beat, I'm standing in a lot of the visiting team locker room in Dallas. And I hear, you know, my name Frank, Frank, and he must've said it four times. I finally turn around and he says, you don't, tu- you don't respond when people say your name. I didn't realize he was, I didn't think he knew who I was yet. So he, he wanted my attention for something that he wanted to ask me. Like that's, you know, that's kind of how like, Patrick Ewing was like, he just didn't have that kind of relationships with reporters. He was great to deal with, but when he was saying my name like four or five times, I remember sitting there thinking, I know he's not talking to me. It must be somebody else named Frank in the locker room.
0: All right. Two more sort of journalism ones, and then I want to finish on basketball. Um, how do you, how do you feel about Tronk? I want to just ask that open-ended. Well, I, I think, I think the
1: disappointing part is, um, you know, last week I was in Washington, D.C., and I was, uh, I was down there for PTI, and I'm also doing my radio show when I'm down there. And as I walked through the hotel, you know, they have newspapers available for free, which is actually pretty cool. And I picked up the Washington Post, and I'm looking at the Washington Post, and Chuck Culpepper is over at the British Open, and Chuck had been in um, uh, Russia for the World Cup. And, you know, they were just, they had, like, a lot of different things that they were covering on the front of the paper. There was a big story about the football team, and then inside, like, on the... There was a good story uh, by the beat writer for the Washington Nationals. I apologize if uh, I don't remember the person's name, but it was a very interesting story about how the bullpen the pitcher the relief pitchers of Washington are upset with the manager because he keeps he's wearing them out. he'll get them up during an inning, but not bring them in, not bring them in the next inning and I remember reading I had like a smile on my face thinking like this is a beat story. this is like the stuff that like you know we always used to do." At the Daily News, it was just great to like, read a newspaper, and it felt like there was nothing wrong with the business. And I thought about you know, the guy that bought the Washington Post, and he's done a great job investing the money in it. And here you have yeah. the Daily News where they bought it, but I just don't think they bought it to put out a good product. I, I mean, you're getting rid of John Harper. He had been there for 25 years. He's got a voice in the city. He's on a TV show. Here's the funny thing about the Daily News, and I owe them everything. They helped build my brand and through that brand i end up getting a radio show and i get to be on espn and i have i think i probably have more twitter followers than anybody else at the daily news so you help build my brand you're looking to have like a footprint on the internet, social media, and all this stuff. So, when you help build my brand and at the apex of it, you're getting rid of me. What sense does that make? So, that, and once well, again, that's not to say that yeah. I should have been the person that stayed, but if you were looking at it from a business standpoint and trying to be, uh, you know, stay successful and stay relevant, it's just bizarre that they would do something like that.
0: Yeah, but it's, you know what, I mean, the, the, the not, it's not even a secret. What, the, unfortunately, I don't, I think it's very clear Tronk is not interested in journalism they're not interested in journalistic brand building they're interested in strip mining these properties to get as much revenue yeah, yeah. as and, they and, can and, before they and, before they end the properties you're right they, you know they're a, they're not in my opinion and i think it's shared and validated by people much smarter than me, they're not interested in investing in journalism. They're interested in getting as much profit out of a journalistic enterprise as possible. That's, ex- what they're, that's ex- their business.
2: Ex-
1: exactly. And then, you know, you look at Rupert Murdoch and whether or not you, you know, agree, disagree with his politics. You know, he has put a lot of money into the New York Post, and I'm sure that they're Absolutely. losing money. But look, look at their paper. You know, Mark Canizaro right. was, you know, was going to be at all four major golf tournaments. We didn't even go to the Masters. Forget about the British yep. Open. We always used to go to that stuff. You know, so they're in, they've, they've made investments in their paper.
0: That's the weird paradox about Murdoch, right, is that like, there's a lot of really awful things about him. At the same time, there's very few people that wealthy who love newspapers. It's, yeah. it's
1: crazy. And, and, and that's what I always felt. My, my feeling about the daily news was always going to be, well, there has to be somebody out there. Who's got, when I, you know, when you we're hearing that Mort Zuckerman wanted to get rid of the paper, I always felt there's got to be somebody out there with a big enough ego and a big enough wallet that's going to want kind of the cachet of owning a New York paper, which is definitely what, how Rupert Murdoch is. And like I said, they love the uh, dealing with the political stuff. And then you have all the gossip stuff. And then you have the sports. And that's kind of what made these tabloids run. And the Post is still doing it. You know, page six is obviously very big. Their front pages are still very provocative. And they have a lot of sports. I mean, they, they cover everything. And it's a shame really over the last three years because of the financial difficulties you know, the Daily News stopped covering sports the way that it, that it once did, and you could just you could feel it. You could just feel the post kind of just like running by the Daily News when it came to that.
0: All right, last one on uh, on your story, and then we'll finish up with selfishly. I have to ask you about Kawhi. I was going to say, let's, let's come, keep come, uh, enough on.
1: about me. Let's uh, let's talk no, about let, how do you feel will, about
0: me. Yeah, yeah. Last one for me. Uh, so, what's your thought now? You take a little bit of time. Obviously, you, you let this. Um, you know, you let sort of the week and the two weeks sort of fall out. But the good news for you is you do have a brand. You're on a national radio show. You're on uh, the most powerful sports network that exists in this country. And I know for a fact you're going to get calls from people inquiring whether you're interested in continuing to write and what you want to do. So how, um, you know, if you don't want to give up sort of anybody you've talked to, I understand that. But what's your thought process about what your next writing step is?
1: I oh, I'm definitely interested in it. It, it. You know, I doubt it's going to be in a newspaper. I'm certainly not going to leave uh, <laughs> New York, so I, I don't think it's going to be in a newspaper, but I would definitely like to uh, continue writing. And like you said, you know, the people here at Sirius could not have been nicer to me over the years. And then the folks in at ESPN, and I mostly deal with, the you know, the guys in Washington, uh, you know, Eric Reinholm and Matt Kelleher on PTI, Aaron Solomon, Josh Bard on Around the Horn, and that, that whole crew down there. I mean, they're, they're such unbelievable people. And, of course, you know Tony and Mike on PTI, and then Tony Reale is just, uh, he's the man. He's, he's been great to me. So ESPN and Sirius have been tremendous. And that's not to say that the Daily News you know, wasn't good to me. It's just a different vibe. I mean, when you work for a newspaper, there's a lot more stress. And I'm not saying there's not stress in radio and there's not stress in TV, but just their way of dealing with people and the way they go about their business—it's been—it's been very pleasant. It's been a, a great experience working at those two places. But I, I definitely I enjoy riding and I like uh, you know being around teams. So I hope something like that could uh, conceivably continue.
0: Yeah, listen, um, I know exactly what you're talking about because you know now now having uh, a long working at the Athletic, I think people know I work for Rogers in Canada and as someone who wrote forever like you it is it is a different world when you're quote-unquote talent it's you can understand why people are like wow this is pretty cool you mean like uh you know you're you're treating me nicely and (laughs) you're interested in what i have to say it's actually uh the other thing is like uh, sean
1: butler andy (laughs) king over here it's serious they never get stressed out about anything where editors at newspapers get stressed out and that eric ryan home uh, you know, especially him, like he's in charge of the whole thing. He's got all these shows that he was res- responsible for. And I've been down in that office in DC a lot the last couple of years. I've never seen the guy get upset or get stressed out. And like that stuff to me always trickles down to everybody. So in that the newspaper is, like I said, it's just different. And it's, you know, your newspaper editors, and this goes back to when I worked at the post, you know, they're, they're riding you hard. And there's kind of like this, you're on deadline and you better get this story. But the the pace in TV and radio could be tough, too. But these two places have, you know, the the people are just incredible to work with.
0: Yeah. Listen, best two ways to be successful at ESPN. One, have Eric Ryanholm take an interest in your career. (laughs) Two, most likely hire Nick Conn of CAA. Get one of those two things. You're you're probably going to be okay. Uh, All right. Frank, before we get out of here, I must talk to you about Kawhi Leonard because obviously it is basically the story of stories up here in Toronto, even with the John Tavares signing. Uh, your neck of the woods. So they're the basketball cognoscenti. You know, the Zach Lowe's, the Rachel Nichols, the Frank Isola's of the world, the highbrow basketball people. Love the trade. Praise Masai Ujiri for getting the best asset in the trade. And if it doesn't work out, you basically can restart on your rebuild uh, one year earlier because you're out from under DeMar DeRozan's contract. There are a few skeptics, Frank, up here, like myself, who... Um I you know I think would should be cautious about giving up 3 years of DeMar DeRozan for 1 year of Kawhi Leonard where you're not really sure how healthy he is yet and you need to know what his commitment is. That said, it's a fascinating fascinating off-season trade and it has made the Raptors front page back page news here over the last couple of days. From your vantage point, how did you see this trade?
1: Well, I like this way I like the trade for Toronto. I actually like it for San Antonio as well because the guy put you in a pretty tough spot and you still end up getting a really good player out of the deal knowing that the guy didn't want to play for you anymore. But as in terms of uh, Toronto, you know, if you start looking at the top five players in the league and let's say, you know, prior to this year, let's say Kawhi Leonard is healthy and he, LeBron, Kevin Durant, they're free agents. Are any of them going to Toronto? I'm not sure they no are.
0: Chance. <laughs> right. yeah.
1: No chance. Right. So, so, so when one of those guys becomes available, you know, you're going to have to take a bit of a risk. And you just mentioned the risk. A, is he healthy? B, can you resign him? And you're also giving away a player like DeMar DeRozan. And the dynamic there, and I could sense it from talking to media people up there and fans, is that DeMar DeRozan was different. Because unlike Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady, he wanted to stay. In Toronto, you know, you had a guy that you drafted from L.A. He's got no connection to Toronto. He fell in love with the city. The city fell in love with him. So I get that part of it. And, you know, I have my um, suspicions about Kawhi Leonard. I've been really critical of him all year long. I don't like what he pulled only being around the team for those nine games and all this other nonsense, but he's still a top, top player. And the, the NBA is different than these other sports. You know, unfortunately, you have to chase these stars. You know, who's going to the finals every year? Who's winning championships? You have to have star players. And I think, you know, Masai took a risk, obviously, but that's the only way to get a guy like Kawhi Leonard. So I was, I, it, I'll tell you what, the press conference for Masai, I felt for him a little bit because, you know, he had been in Africa, and you know, he's there with uh, President Barack Obama. Barack Obama. He's, probably, he's yeah. probably thinking, like, how great is my life right now? <laughs> he makes this <laughs> trade, and then you got you know DeMar DeRozan, who never said two words in his life, is you know crushing you on Instagram, and then you know the, the things that he's saying. But Masai's in a tough spot, and you know Masai kept wiping his brow at the press conference, but he handled it the right way. I don't think for one minute that De, uh, that Masai Ujiri said to DeMar DeRozan, "Under no circumstances am I trading you." I do not believe that for a minute, but he's also not going to get up there at the press conference and turn it into, no, DeMar's not telling you the truth. So Masai was kind of in a tough spot. He just kind of, he kind of sucked it up a little bit and just kept saying, hey, my job is to try to make the team better. And ultimately, that's what it is. It's not like they, you know, DeMar DeRozan got traded for Courtney Lee and Michael Beasley for salary cap reasons. Right. I mean, he did get traded for Kawhi Leonard for crying out loud. It's a pretty good player to get traded for.
0: I know. I listen. I really like Masai, so I have these mixed feelings. Because on the one hand, I get the I get the basketball part of the trade, and you know Toronto got the best player. Usually, if you get the best player, you're going to win the trade. But um, having been up here and understanding how much DeMar gave to Toronto, and how rare it is for a U.S. born player to pledge fidelity to the city like that, it's you know it's it's hard, Masai has always pitched to the Raptors culture and the Raptors is kind of a different organization. And I'm again, I'm not blaming him. This is his job, but he made a mercenary move. And I think that's, what's a little hard to swallow is it just sort of reminds you that the Raptors are like every other organization and they'll trade their, they'll trade the guy who showed the most loyalty to them in the history of the franchise, you know, for one shot, Uh, you know, a, a, a pretty interesting shot. But all the same, essentially a one single season shot to win the title.
1: Yeah, but I also think this too. I think a lot of the players, you know, don't even though they might go to Toronto twice a year. And in the case of Corey Leonard, he would only be going there, you know, one time. And you know, you're you're in and out of the city. Now he's going to be up there, and I think when he gets a chance to realize that it's a big time city that it's a team of Canada, not just of Toronto. Not
0: just Toronto, yeah. and,
1: and, you know, the marketing possibilities and things like that, you know, it, it could certainly change his feeling. Plus, for Kawhi Leonard, why wouldn't you want to be in the Eastern Conference? Because LeBron is in the West. I, th- I, think, I think it's the last active seven MVPs, so I'm including Dirk and Derrick Rose in that list, all play in the Western Conference. So Jesus. Kawhi Leonard coming to the East and being healthy, he's the best player and the Eastern Conference, it's a pretty good status to have. And the, yeah, that's the, interesting. The, right? And the East is wide open. So i the city's a great city. I've spent a lot of time up there. I mean, I was there when Joe Carter hit the home run uh, to win the World Series. So I've, uh, I've known the city of Toronto, been there for a million sporting events. It's, and as you know, I mean, you're there. It's one of the great sporting cities in North America. See, I didn't say United States. I said North America, so I was smart about that. But I think he'll – there's no way that he's not going to like the city, put it that way. Now, whether or not he stays, I'm not so sure. Charles Oakley loved it. He told me the other day he gives it a 65% chance. That, not that he's basing on anything, <laughs> but he said he gives it a 65% chance that he's staying. We'll, we'll see how it works because, you know, do you want to be known as a guy that's going to be on three teams in less than a year? Obviously, Paul George didn't want that, and everybody thought he was going to L.A. as well. And he's saying Oklahoma City. And Oklahoma City, I don't have an issue with that city, but it's not Toronto, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, it's, inter- it's going to be great to follow this team this year because every single day is going to be kind of Kawhi watch. Um, last one for me, and again, I appreciate your time. You know, I've been reading over the last, not surprisingly, couple days a lot of people shitting on Carmelo Anthony. Um, it's sort of like seems to be um, oftentimes a sport for NBA fans. But the one thing I remember you telling me, I don't remember where you told me this, but I know you did, was that you really liked Carmelo as a stand-up guy in terms of covering him as long as you did uh, for um, for the daily news and I, I wanted to just ask you about that does it, is Carmelo's rep nationally maybe a little bit unfair because of the fact that he hasn't won a title, the fact that he's always sort of in the position to make as much money as possible but it's it's interesting to me there's there's a disconnect between I think what a lot of fans think of Carmelo. And what I've heard from you, someone who actually spent a lot of time with him in the reporter-subject relationship,
1: hey, he was a lovely guy to cover. I, I, I had a lot of good times with Carmelo. Very professional, always accommodating. I always said this about Carmelo, you know, he's standing around his locker after a game, and if somebody had come in, you know, there was an out-of-town reporter from wherever, male, female, old, young, and they're in the back, and they might come out of you know left field with a question never once will belittle the person or look at them as if they say, like, who the heck are you asking this question? He was always very respectful to everyone in the media. I think the mistake that Carmelo made was what, when he first came to the Knicks, if he had just waited until July when he became a free agent, the Knicks would not have been had to trade all the players they had. kind of like what happened with LeBron in L.A. The only difference is they were trading those players to try to get Kawhi, and they would still have LeBron. But if Carmelo had just waited until the following July, I think that would have... Uh, that would have been much better for him. And I think that would have been better for the Knicks. Because remember, when he got to the Knicks and they put a really strong supporting cast around him, and they had a guy like Jason Kidd in the locker room who really ran things, and Carmelo kind of fell in line. Carmelo finished third in the MVP that year. The Knicks won the Atlantic Division. Now they had a disappointing second-round series against Indiana and ended up losing, but Carmelo had a great season. Now he's not the same player he once was, and I think that the mistake now he's making in his career is that he should embrace the idea. Now, I think he's going to be a starter when he goes to Houston, but being a six-man is not the worst thing. Manager Ginobili's done it. When Dwayne Wade went back to Miami, he was a six-man. You can still be a great player. It doesn't diminish what he's done in his career, but I think he has kind of this stubborn pride in himself that being like a six-man is somehow this awful demotion. It's you know He was starting in Oklahoma City and wasn't playing in the fourth quarter. That was better for him? Wouldn't you rather be like a six-man and maybe you are in the game? in the fourth quarter. So I I think him being stubborn about that, I think that's a mistake, but I do think that he gets mocked way too much by people. He loves to play basketball. You know, he's a a terrific scorer and are on the right team. He could be a big help. And this year that he'll be under a lot of pressure, you know, assuming he does go to Houston because they lost Trevor Riza, a very good two-way player. So Carmelo will likely get a starting job offensively. We know he can do it, but he's going to have to do something for them. At the defensive end as well.
0: All right, Frank. Listen, I, I appreciate the time today. You certainly did not have to do this. Um, I know it's been a, a pretty not a pretty. I know it's been a tough week. I have no doubt, though, that you are going to land somewhere. Um, land somewhere in terms of uh, in terms of your writing. I selfishly hope that we are colleagues one day, and um, and people will continue to listen, watch and read you and uh, i think you've got the right idea this is not the end at all it's just basically you know the turn of one long chapter into into another one and as a new yorker it makes me sad because i do think the daily news while it, while it was struggling and dying i think tronk officially killed it the other day and that's really hard for someone who loves newspapers to uh to um to see but again i appreciate your time today and uh, and thanks for coming on the Sports Media Podcast.
1: And then, Richard, I appreciate that, and I also appreciate the fact that you've always been obviously very supportive of me, but also of all newspaper reporters and you know the, the way that you handled the stuff that happened at ESPN when all those people got laid off. And I know that was sincere, and I know that people... Appreciate all that, so uh, keep up the good work, and hopefully the next time I'm on a podcast with you, maybe it'll be after uh, the Knicks win a championship in a couple of years. How about that?
0: (laughs) Might be uh, 2027, Frank. (laughs) Frank Isola. All right, my thanks to Frank Isola for his candor and what I think was a really good conversation. And before we get to our next guest, I want to mention that today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart, a place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Richard. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free, absolutely free. Head to this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash That is ZipRecruiter.com slash R-I-C-H-A-R-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash Richard. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right. And as I said at the top, we now bring in Clifton Brown, the fine enterprise reporter at the Indy Star. And we're talking to Clifton today because of his book, Bearing the Cross, My Inspiring Journey from Poverty to the NFL and Sports Television. That is a uh, book on Irv Cross, who's really one of the more interesting figures, at least in my opinion, when it comes to sports broadcasting and specifically the NFL broadcasting. And Clifton Brown joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Clifton, um, I, I, here's where I want to start. The, the world of television today, uh, we see African-American men across the networks as analysts, whether it's former players, former coaches, You know, from Charles Barkley to Tony Dungy to Charles Woodson. But that was not the case when Irv Cross first came to network television in the 1970s. Can you you give me a sense first of what that, from your talking to Irv, from your writing the book, what was it like when he was first hired? What was the reaction and... How much of a pioneer was he?
3: Well, he was definitely a, a pioneer in his field, as this book uh, entails. He was really the, the forerunner, the first uh, African-American to be on a national uh, sports program uh, as an analyst. And Irv had done TV work in Philadelphia before he was hired by CBS. Uh, almost accidentally, uh, someone saw him give a public speaking engagement like what they heard that led to him doing some radio work and then some tv work in philadelphia while he was still playing for the eagles but when the concept for the nfl today uh became a reality uh, it was a risky proposition for cbs they decided intentionally that they wanted to have a woman who was phyllis george an african-american who became who was her cross and then of course brent musburger the professional traffic cop who could tie kind of tie everything together. And then later on, they added Jimmy the Greek, which added a whole other element to the show, but it was a risk. And it's fascinating to me that Irv was the guy chosen because he wasn't a superstar player. He was a two-time right. Pro Bowl player and a decent player, but not a superstar. They could have gone with a Jim Brown or Gail Sayers or someone like that, but they were convinced CBS was from his work at CBS in Philadelphia that he had the right stuff, the right persona, was knowledgeable enough and was congenial enough that he would work. And it turned out to be a stroke of genius putting that team together.
0: Clifton, what was the genesis to write his life story? Um, did, Did someone from Herb's camp contact you, or is just this a figure who you always thought was interesting and could be explored in book form?
3: Yeah, I did think Irv was interesting. I grew up in Philadelphia, um, so I was familiar with Irv uh, being a guy who knows Eagles history and Philadelphia obviously sports history and then getting into business myself, but it was really accidental. Uh, I wanted to write. I was looking for book ideas. I felt like I was ready to write a book. I submitted some ideas to the publisher at who I ended up working with, and he liked the Irv Cross idea the best. And I had never met Earth Cross until we started working on this book project. So once Skyhorse decided that they wanted to do a book on Earth Cross, or that they thought it would be an interesting book, I contacted Irv. We met in a hotel room in Philadelphia when he was being put into the Eagle's Ring of Honor, and we just hit it off. We talked for a long time about his life, uh, his career, and he told me he always wanted to write a book, but had never obviously done it, and he felt like, it was now or never that he was getting to the age where if he waited too much longer, it would never happen. So we decided that we would work together and it went from there.
0: That's interesting. D- did Irv, during the course of your initial conversations, did he, did he offer any kind of opinion Clifton on the fact that nobody had come to him prior to do some kind of long form? Because if you think, if you just step away, first half prominent African-American, on um, as an analyst in sports broadcasting, a former NFL player, and a great college player. Well, he's got a really, really interesting story, yet he's one of these guys in history, like if you don't write this book, I'm not saying he fades away and we don't remember him, but it, we, you know, we don't get the kind of richness that your book delivered.
3: Yeah, it's funny, Richard. Irv uh, is one of the most humble people I've ever met. I'm not just saying that because I wrote a book about him. I mean, he is... Unusually humble. And one of the reasons why his television career didn't continue after the NFL Today show ended in a significant way is that he didn't pursue uh, other TV jobs after that ended. He didn't have an agent uh, that he was working with. And he's a highly educated, intelligent man and just decided he would go into other fields you know he became an athletic director he worked in business he was never seduced by the glamour of tv because this is not his personality so when you talk about no one ever doing a book on him before now even though Irv wanted to write a book he's just not the type of guy to make 10-15 phone calls trying to get someone interested in doing a book on him he just wow. kind of feels that well if it's If it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. He's a very religious guy. So he just kind of felt that when I approached him about doing a book, because I wanted to do it, because I was enthusiastic about it, because he felt like he could trust me with his story, that this was the right time to do it. But I'm not sure if anyone had not approached him personally and convinced him that this is something he should do I'm not sure there ever would have been a book on him, and to me, considering the role he played in television, that would have been a travesty.
0: Yeah, no agent, Clifton. My head is spinning from this. This is this is I mean, uh, in a 2018 context, that's that's almost inconceivable. That's a uh, that's amazing. Um, one thing that I think is, and I don't know how much you and Irv got into this, but this would be a really, a really, really interesting topic to me and other people who are listening. Is did Irv? Did Irv get into with you uh, whether he faced any kind of racism early on in his career about being a black face on television or even internally at CBS? Obviously, there were managers who had faith in him. They put him on the air. But, I mean, Clifton, you know from doing your research, essentially sports broadcasting then was just white faces. You know, Frank Gifford— Cosell, Jim McKay, but there was a certain archetype of who was on the air for the most part, and that archetype, usually in sports broadcasting, did not include um, either black men or black women.
3: Yeah, well, there's no question there was a lot of racism in the business at that time,
0: and he knew for sure that if he
3: didn't do well, he felt that that would be a setback as far as any other African-Americans getting a chance after him, but he certainly felt the pressure of that Uh, He never talked to me about a lot of backlash he got from viewers, you know, hate mail and all that type of stuff, because I think some of it helped. He's been on television before in Philly, and people kind of knew who he was, and he was part of a team with Grant and Phyllis and the Greek, whereas some of the attention was deflected from him. But he definitely knew – at CBS he talked to this antidote in the book about when he finally got the job at CBS or did get the job the name is a guy he went, they went shopping for clothes for him and they kind of wanted him to wear, you know, a gold chain and have his shirt, you know, unbuttoned, you know, two or three buttons. And he was going to be the kind of hip, you know, cool black guy. And that's not right. earth style. And he told them, that I'm not dressing that way. You know, I wear a suit and tie. I don't wear gold chains. And if I have to do this to be on the air, I'm not going to do it. And he kind of, he definitely believes that had they not already been far down the road and he had not already signed his contract and they were doing promotional hits about the new NFL today team. He thinks they may have replaced them. but it was almost too late to wow. do that. So they just said, okay, uh, so he said, you wear whatever you want. So, Those were the type of stereotypes he was dealing with when he took the job. And again, he knew that if he didn't do well, it would be a setback for other African-Americans behind him to get an opportunity. So he certainly felt that pressure the whole time he was on the NFL today.
0: Wow. I mean, that's some crazy stereotyping shit. I mean, putting a guy in, you know, certain, uh, you know, no collar shirt, chains i mean that that's straight out of like a bad 70s film that's 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 doesn't well it doesn't surprise me it's still kind of crazy to hear in 2018 when i uh when i did my research clifton before talking to you there was a piece that sports illustrated did on Irv in 1996 and he was um you know there was sort of uh he at that time he was the athletic director at idaho state um you know in one of his post uh CBS jobs, I believe, by the way, making $89,000 a year. Uh, keep that in mind for, from a former television uh, uh, salary. And one of the things, that I wanted to get your take on this, was in the piece, the writer uh, for Sports Illustrated writes about CBS firing Brent Musburger during the 1990 NCAA Final Four, very famous firing in sports broadcasting. And that's when Irv thought his days might be numbered. Then they moved Terry Bradshaw and Greg Gumbel into the studio they demote Irv to game analyst. Then, in the spring of 1992, CBS Sports President Neil Pilsen tells Irv Cross they're not going to renew his contract. Irv Cross offers to take a pay cut, but the network says no. Uh, that's amazing to me. Did Irv? I, I, I you know I haven't read your book, um, but I am sure that you get into that. That must have uh, after all those years of service for CBS to be that cold. That, that, that must have been a pretty big shock to the system for Irv.
3: Yeah, it was definitely a blow to Irv. He, he could see it coming. I mean, you know, Richard, like when your shelf life runs out, whether it's in the business as a whole or for whoever you're working for, there's really nothing you can do or say to change that momentum. They're going to go in, another, in a different direction. How many times have people heard that we're going in a different direction? And once that decision is made, it doesn't matter who you are. But, yeah, Irv was very loyal to CBS. When Fox got into the NFL, uh, Irv was still working for CBS, and a lot of people were jumping to Fox. Irv had a contract with CBS. Uh, He wanted to honor that, and he did. And once his contract was coming to an end, they decided CBS, with Brent already being gone, Phyllis was gone, Jimmy the Greek was long gone, he was the last holdover from the old-school NFL today, and, again, they felt it was time to bring in another face. And, yeah, he was hurt by it um, because he had been loyal to CBS, but knowing, her, as Irv is, once it became a fact that there was nothing he could do, he simply moved on. But, yeah, he I think if he had to do it over again, would he have been a little more aggressive uh, trying to get another job in TV? I think absolutely. Would he have gone to Fox? Uh, when he had an opportunity to do so, probably because he loved working on TV and he loved the game of football. But there are so many other things that Irv Cross can do. I mean, he was an honest student at Northwestern. Um, as you mentioned, right. he's been an athletic director. Uh, he's run a financial business. He, he worked at as an executive when he was playing for the Eagles. So he is not just a sports guy. He is a well-rounded man, and he just decided that, well, now's the time for me to use my other school, my other skills, and he pushed his ego to the side. Again, so when, some people are, once you're on TV, I think most people are seduced by it. He just never, even though he was one of the largest figures in TV, sports TV at one time, he was never seduced by the glamour.
0: So as Clifton said, um, after CBS, Irv Cross goes to Idaho State, he's a... Athletic director there for a couple of years. He becomes the director of athletics at McAllister College in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. He's the CEO of Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Central Minnesota. That's part of his um that's part of his post CBS life. He was a honor student in Northwestern, obviously an incredibly bright guy who um had these careers actually after CBS. I mean, um, you know, for some people getting becoming an athletic director would be essentially the ceiling, but that's sort of Irv's uh, second and third act. So Clifton, here's sort of where I want to finish. Um, in doing a little bit of, you know, I was curious, like, what's Irv doing now? And he's now 78 years old, and he gave an interview to a Northwestern University publication not too long ago, said he's coping with mild dementia, spinal injuries, numbness in his limbs, and unrelenting headaches. Um which, you know, obviously for those of us who are fans of Irv Ross is sort of tough to, uh, tough to see. But, you know, it, it, he was lucid, gave really interesting answers. So he does have his good days and he plans to have his brain tested for CTE at Harvard University after he dies. Um, when is the last time you spoke with Irv Clifton? And can you give people who watch the NFL today back in the um, 70s, 80s and, uh, and early 90s just a sense of what Irv is doing now and how he's doing?
3: Yeah, I talked to Irv last week, a matter of fact. Um, as you mentioned, when you speak to him on the phone, particularly if it's somebody he knows well, you would never think that he's suffering from some of the symptoms that he described. But he lives outside of Minnesota with his wife, uh, lives a quiet life, doesn't get out too much anymore. But he's always upbeat, at least on days when he's feeling well. And I think the biggest thing for people who are big fans – of Irv Cross to know is he is totally at peace with the life that he's lived. Um, he treated people the right way. He always carried himself the way he thought he should. I mean, he's one of 15 kids, which I did not know until I met him wow. and did, did this book. He grew up very, very poor. His mother died when Irv was nine years old. All the things that he had to overcome— just to get to Northwestern and get to the NFL is almost a story in itself. And then for him to go on and have the career that he did in television, he feels that he's very blessed. And, you know, so many athletes now develop these symptoms of playing football much earlier than he did. He, if you look at him, he's still in great shape. Looks like he could, you know, run a 100-yard dash, you know, if you ask him to. But, yes, his mind, you know, is is starting to, you know, play tricks on him. And his winter year, he had a serious concussion, spent two days in the hospital, and was told not to play the last game of the season and played anyway. And, you know, he's had at least ten or eight or nine concussions in his career. So he feels blessed that it didn't catch up to him until now. So he's doing well. He's at peace with his life. Um, hopefully, you know, he's still gonna be around for a long time, but yes, he is, um, you know, feeling the effects of having played in the NFL and other things finally now at, at his age.
0: Well, again, for anybody who's uh in their 20s, just go to Google and Google Irv Cross and hit video, uh, off Google News and just check his workout. The guy, again, he, he was so ahead of his time in terms of, um, in terms of what you see on TV today, which is totally commonplace, that was just not the case when Irv Cross was hired by the NFL today. And The NFL today, for uh, you know, say say what you want about some of its hokiness, it was it was way ahead of its time, just in terms of what they did, including gambling content, which is crazy. I want to point out, as I did at the top, that um, one this is Clifton's first book, so congrats to Clifton. Go Google his career; he's had an amazing career. Worked at some fantastic publications. And the book that he just put out on Irv was recently chosen for the author showcase at next next week's NABJ convention in Detroit. So Clifton will be uh, highlighting that book there. Hopefully, you get some sales and make some change on the back end, Clifton. Uh, Clifton, I, man, I have great respect for your career. Uh, I've been reading you for a long time, and uh, when I discovered uh, this week that you had did that bur- book on Irv, uh, I was really psyched to see it because I find him to be just an interesting figure in in sports broadcasting history so thanks for a little bit of time today best of luck with the book again for people it's bearing the cross my inspiring journey from poverty to the NFL and sports television go on Amazon or any place that sells books and you can order it and check it out Clifton thanks so much for joining us today on the uh, sports media podcast thanks so much for having
3: me Richard Now I'll
0: give your regards to her next time I speak to him all right, before we get to Ben Ryder and my thanks to Clifton Brown for his time, I want to mention that today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch is also brought to you by Buffalo Wild Wings. A great man once said, baseball is the wings of sports. Now, it didn't make sense at the time, and quite frankly, it really doesn't make sense now, but we're inclined to agree because baseball is great and wings are great, and you can find both at Buffalo Wild Wings. And because baseball has pop flies and wings help you fly, all right, we don't really know that, but Maybe the man was saying baseball is America's game and wings are America's chicken. That makes sense. Don't dwell on it. Here's the point. We've got baseball. We've got delicious wings. And all we're missing is you. Come for the wings and stay for the baseball. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings. Beer. Sports. All right. Joining us now is Ben Ryder, my former colleague, a senior writer at Sports Illustrated and the author of Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All. Ben's book explores how the Houston Astros went from remaking one of the worst franchises in baseball into a World Series champion. I'm, uh, this book has gotten really terrific reviews. Uh, you've probably, If you're a baseball fan, you've probably seen Ben do an interview somewhere. So I'm really happy to see his success for this book. And he joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Ben, long time. How are you?
2: Doing well, Richard. Thanks for having me on.
0: Ben, I see your Twitter feed. A couple days ago, you were at the Strand Bookstore in New York City, an amazing bookstore. It seems like there's a sellout crowd there, listening to you give one of these talks. Is that was that is that a room full of uh, writer family and friends, or did, or or were the waves of New Yorkers coming in to hear about the Astros? That's awesome. Regardless. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as I said on Twitter, I definitely had a home field advantage
2: there. Uh, the Strand being five blocks from my apartment, of course, it's also one of the great bookstores in the world. Uh, But look, I was stunned by the turnout. I certainly had a lot of family and friends there. But it turns out there were sleeper cells of Astros fans, not just in Houston, but around the country. It's a huge city, of course, just waiting through the dark years uh, for a success like this. So we certainly had a lot of baseball fans and real Astros fans coming out as well. It was a pretty unforgettable night at a wonderful place.
0: Yeah, congratulations. All right, Ben, listen, as I told you before we came on, I'm I'm not going to go heavy on the book itself because you have only done 637 interviews on it. Google Ben Ryder. You can literally find the entire history of the Houston Astros, probably going back all the way to the – what were they before the Colt Forty Fives? Is that something like that? are the Astros back?
2: Yeah, they started out as the Colt Forty Fives. The same time right. the Mets came into the league.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Bet you'll trust me. There's an interview somewhere with Ben where he gives you the history of the Colt Forty Fives. I'm sure. But what <laughs> I want, what I want to talk about, and this is really interesting to me, is, is the behind the scenes of how you, how you actually get a book together. This is your first book, mm-hmm. right, Ben? Yes, it is. Okay, so let's start from the beginning in terms of how did. How does the idea for the book come? Do you, after you did your well known Astros story, do you think to yourself, man, there's a, uh, you know, they win the World Series. There's a really good story here how they went from worst to first. Does a, uh, an agent or a publishing house come to you and say, hey, Ben, we love your work on baseball. We know you're really tight with the Astros. This would be a good book. Give listeners um, the backstory of how this came to be.
2: Honestly, I started thinking there might be a book here when I was sitting in the Astros draft room next to Nolan Ryan and Craig Biggio and Jeff Luno in June of 2014. You know, what I was hearing in there, to me, somebody who at the time covered baseball full time for, I think, seven or eight years, uh, was something I'd never heard before or seen before. I thought that this team, that all anybody knew about it was that they were just ludicrously bad. They were awful. They were incompetent. What I thought at the time is that they were doing something really innovative, uh, really new, as far as not just pushing analytics as far as they can go, but bringing back in the human factor, reprioritizing scouting and growth mindset and things like that to try to get the best out of both man and machine. So at the time, I was like, "This is really interesting." I was also realistic. I was like, "If this doesn't work, if this blows up, if this turns into one of these spectacular sports failures over the past 10 years, nobody's going to care." what they're doing. So I kind of sat there with the idea in the back of my head, kept reporting it out over the next several years, thinking, you know, that as they got better, maybe it would turn into a viable project. Now, as far as getting the actual project off the ground, I'd say for the past seven or eight years, periodically, agents have been reaching out to me just based on my SI work, asking, do you have a book idea? Do you have something you want to do? You know, I knew I only wanted to do a book if it was something I deeply believed in that I wanted to spend that much time on uh, and that I thought the public would value. Um, one of the agents who had reached out to me over that time was a guy named Chris Paris Lamb. Uh, his big breakthrough was The Art of Fielding by Chad Harbach. Uh, he's developed into a very good agent. I knew I wanted an agent who would not just get a good deal for the book, but somebody who would engage with the ideas and help me shape it when I took it out. Uh, so honestly, I remember the point at which last October I realized that, man, I think we might have something here. It was after they went up 2 nothing against the Yankees in the ALCS. I called Chris from the press box of Yankee Stadium before the game. I said, hey, man, I think there's about a 35% chance that they'll actually win the World Series, and that might be what they have to do for this to be a viable project. But uh, if that happens... I think we might have something there. He loved the idea, um, and we kind of sat back for the next two weeks to see what was going to happen.
0: Okay, so the Astros win the World Series, and now you're like, listen, I got a great story here. What usually happens, Ben, and I imagine this happened for you, is you write a proposal that gets shopped to different publishers, and publishers either have interest or don't have interest in the book. So is that correct? You write a proposal, you send it to your agent. Your agent shops to publishers, then what happens next?
2: Right. Well, you know, almost the moment that Jose Altuve threw to Yuli Gurriel in Los Angeles for the final out on November 1st, I mean, it was game on. First, it meant that the prediction had come true, which was kind of unbelievable. But at the top of my mind, you know, after I did my reporting that night was, now it's go time for this book. Because we always knew that there wasn't going to be a long time to get the thing done uh, because, you know, you want it, publishing takes a while, and you wanted to get it out as fast as possible. So, yeah, you know, after I got back to New York, I talked with Chris Paris Lamb, um, got together a pretty tightly structured 10,000-word proposal, which I not only laid out the idea for the book and the concepts I wanted to elucidate um, and not only kind of describe the sort of access that I'd had and the reporting I'd been doing ever since 2014, but laid out each chapter Uh, It was a tight outline, really wanted publishers to easily grasp what this book was going to be. So that took about a week and a half, maybe. Um, Chris sent it out to, I think it was eight publishers, probably the week before Thanksgiving in mid-November. I met with all eight of them in New York on a single day, I think, or maybe it was over two days. Um, And then a few days later you know, receive their offers. And we ended up getting offers from six or seven of them. Um, wow. I think it was, I think it was six technically because one, two of the publishers made a combined offer because they were under the same publishing umbrella, um, which was fantastic. Uh, and then it was time to choose. And I knew, you know, obviously got some strong offers, but I knew that I, again, wanted to go with the editor who I thought would best connect with the book and best best be able to shepherd it forward over what was going to be a very tight, intense winter of writing. So ultimately I went with an editor named Kevin Doughton at Crown. Um, That was the easy part, man. The hard part was continuing my reporting while churning this thing out essentially in like two and a half or three months for a draft.
0: Ben, you don't necessarily have to give the um, dollar figure because I don't think you will, but were were you involved in, was the book project involved in a so-called bidding war, where you would get a bid and then you'd go back to another publisher and say, this publisher bid this, if you guys want this, you have to go to this price?
2: Uh, I left that to Chris. I actually don't know all the nitty gritty of how he did it. I know that it was it was a pretty intense day, actually. Like The bids were due in the morning one day, and then the idea was that we would take half of them, the, I guess maybe like the four most attractive ones. And Chris asked them to give their best and final offers uh, by that afternoon. So you know, we had those by that afternoon, and then I made the decision by the next morning. It was incredibly fast.
0: Wow, interesting. Then um, can you, okay, so you, you, you have the book contract, you've signed with, your, with Crown. Very, very exciting. Now you got to write it, of course. And so <laughs> yeah. uh, take me into the writing and reporting processed? Are you going to Houston multiple times? Do you have enough information where you can maybe start to lay out the book before even um, before even going, let's say, back to Houston or back to your subjects? How did you approach that?
2: Well, you know, I was lucky enough to have been reporting on this story since 2014. It's not like I wrote that story and then stepped away for it and then came back uh, during or after the World Series. I've been, you know, establishing sources reporting uh, on various players and developments for a year. So I certainly had a very, very strong base of work that I could draw from. And I knew what the structure of the book was going to be, uh, essentially. I wanted to structure it around nine key decisions that the Astros made along the way uh, that took them from laughing stock to champion. Not all the decisions being good ones, by the way. Like, they certainly messed up a lot of ro- along the way. But it was I pretty quickly honed in on what those decisions were going to be. And that gave me a strong structure for the book, which was certainly necessary to have writing it so fast. Uh, And then, yeah, I went back to reporting it. I did go down to Houston. Um, I did a lot of work connecting with many of the key players in particular, whose stories I wanted to fill out, whether that's Justin Verlander, George Springer, you know, Carlos Beltran, who lives in New York City, was a guy who I wasn't sure was going to be a big part of the book when I started out, actually. He's in the proposal, but not necessarily a key player. Um, He actually lives in New York City, so I went up to where he lives and sat down with him for a couple of hours, and you know, I'm glad I did because that emerged as one of the most unexpected, uh, kind of exciting chapters in the book, I think, about how a guy who didn't have a hit in the World Series made such an impact in that clubhouse in such real ways but they probably wouldn't have won it, won it without him. So, yeah, it was like, you know, I, I was doing reporting. As I started to write the book, I essentially took all December um, and then some of January to button up my reporting, fill in what I need to know. And then, you know, January 2nd or 3rd, I think, it was time to write. And I essentially, I essentially viewed it as, like, 10 connected magazine profiles because that's what I do. I, I write magazine pro, magazine stories. So I figured if I could write one, you know, six or 7,000, magazine story a week for 10 weeks that would be my draft and hmm. that's essentially what i did
0: interesting how much um how much cooperation did you get from the astros for the book
2: i would say the doors became stickier than they had been uh, <laughs> back in 2000 back in 2014 i understand it on some level you know back in 2014 they were getting killed from all sides you know everybody was saying they were just had no idea what they were doing um when I was pitching a story to them, I made no promises. All I said was that I would come in and be open-minded, uh, and that's what I was. You know, they had no promises. It was going to be a positive story, a negative story, or what? Although I think they probably had enough of belief in what they were doing uh, to imagine that if they showed somebody the nitty-gritty of it, it probably wouldn't be overly negative. Um, as the years went on, look, it's a reporting job. I'm a journalist. The book is not, not endorsed by the team. It's not authorized by the team. But I had established my sources. I'd established relationships with a lot of the players. You know, George Springer certainly knew who I was. Verlander knew who I was. Uh, so I didn't necessarily need those endorsements when it came time to uh, do that final stretch of reporting.
0: So I want to talk about book promotion. The book um, has its launch date. There are things you have to do before the launch date, and there's certainly things you got to do when the when the book debuts. When you talk to your publisher, what are some of the things you learned about? Promotion, because they don't teach promotion. Generally speaking, at journalism schools, but in order for a book to pop, you know, unless you are obviously very famous, you really got to work hard in being a marketer in addition to a reporter. So, how did you approach the whole notion of promotion?
2: It's very different, Richard, than promoting, you know, a magazine story or something. I mean, I found early on that it, this is your product, right? Like, I have a great team at Crown. Um, publicists work very hard. They have tons of connections. Uh, but this is very much eat what you kill. And you want people to read the book, right? I mean, you almost have to be a bit shameless about uh, getting it out there. Because, look, I believe in this book. I worked incredibly hard on this. I kind of neglected my family for an entire winter. Um, and I believe in the final product. So there's really no such thing as being too shameless in. In getting the book out there in front of people's eyes, and all you just hope is that people read it. So yeah, I mean, I don't think I've said no to one opportunity yet, and I've kind of sent it to as many people as I've uh, as I could imagine, um, as you have noticed, I guess. <laughs> but look, re- I, really, I just want people to read the book. That's all I want, um, and I think that they will enjoy the book, and they certainly have if they ha- if they've read it so far. So yeah, I mean, there's nobody that I won't that I haven't tried to reach out to. Uh, to, to get their eyeballs on it, um, and I <laughs> gonna continue to do that, I guess.
0: So, give me some specifics. Like, do you, when you sit down with the whether you're sitting down with a publicist or you're coming up with your own game plan, is it like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet this out as many times per day as I can. Is it I'm gonna call up every person in the business that I know. Is it I'm gonna try to contact like a famous person or an influencer who could put this out. I'd be curious as to what you've learned so far in terms of like maybe what works and what doesn't?
2: Uh, that's a great question. I'm still learning it myself, I think. I mean, one thing that uh, we did was put together what somebody called a big mouth list, right? Of, I think you might've been on it actually, which is apropos for you, I would say. <laughs> but it's a, it's a list of, you know, anybody who I might have come across over the years, who I have never met at all, uh, who might have, some interest in the Astros, some interest in baseball, some interest in the broader ideas about how properly using analytics can be applied to institutions, even outside of sports, whether it's finance in particular or, um, or healthcare or politics or anything. So we put together that list of maybe, you know, 25 names, whether it's, you know, Bob Costas is on there, a bunch of journalists, uh, Brian Kenny, a couple celebrities on there, just anybody who, if they read it, uh, they might be willing to uh, mention it somehow, which seems in our social media age uh, to be a great way of publicizing the book. Someone else who was very helpful, uh, who I have to give credit to, was Adam Grant, uh, the, the Wharton professor who's got a really strong presence as an organizational psychologist on social media and stuff. I sent him the book early on. He was a strong proponent on it, and he connected me with somebody at LinkedIn. Then by the time I got to my reading at Brazos Bookstore, which is a great independent bookstore in Houston, um, they estimated there were almost 200 people there. Uh, by the time I walked in the door, they said they'd actually sold out of the book before I even opened my mouth in the store, which they said had never happened before. Um, they put in a reorder, and a lot of people preordered them to be fulfilled at a later date. So, yeah, certainly... Um, the bookstore events I've done so far have, you know, been great personally because people seem to really be excited about the book and to enjoy it. But I do think that, you know, there's nothing, even social media, that is more important as far as connecting with the audience than showing up.
0: All right. A couple more things here. Um, how long does the promotion go? Like, have the have, have the people at Crown said that, like, do they, I guess a lot of times there's like a formal book tour, but then you have to think like mm-hmm. your own informal book tour has to really go as, as far as you can because you can't just make, you know, if I was writing your book, Ben, I think you, you're going to do this too. You can't just make the presumption that like, oh, the only people who are going to be interested in it are the people who are paying attention to baseball during the season. Like there's no reason why somebody on December 14th of this year might not discover your book for the first time. So how are you approaching, how are you approaching sort of marketing even beyond the baseball season?
2: Are you asking how much longer do you have to put up with this on my Twitter feed?
0: Well, I know. I assume that that, that's going to last until, uh, you know, the 2026 World Cup. But I'm more interested in uh, formally, like, are you going to be going to different cities over the next couple months? Are you, uh, uh, you know, what happens when the hardcover, uh, when the the paperback comes out?
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, this is really just the beginning. You're right. As far as, you know, formal events in bookstores, We've booked them stretching out through October here. Nice. It's not like it's like one, one launch trip and then, um, and then it's over. I'm going to Austin to book people, which is another great independent bookstore on Monday, July 30th. Um, have one in Washington, D.C. In fact, in conversation with our old colleague David Epstein, September 29th. Um, really going to push this as long as you can, you know, and I think that the timing is interesting and in that you know, we're fortunate slash we probably expected that the Astros are going to be very good again and should certainly challenge to travel deep into October. Uh, so we'll certainly be pushing it until then. And look, I deeply believe, and I'm, gonna, I'm not just saying this because I wrote it, I deeply believe that this story is one uh, that will appeal to people far beyond Houston and far beyond just this year. Like, it's not just like, oh, a commemorative piece of merchandise to buy about a championship year. It's really kind of an, an unprecedented deep inside look at the way that a modern sports organization, really a modern business, is run uh, to optimize its chances of success. Uh, it's a character-driven story, but that sort of idea can extend far beyond sports and far beyond just, you know, 2018. So I'm certainly hoping that it will have a long long tail as far as uh, people being
0: interested in it. Ben, from other authors that I've spoken with, a lot of them call sort of like, you know, if I, when I've asked like, what is the one place you really would like to promote your book or what is the one media outlet that you really want to get on? Usually, almost inevitably, it's, N- it's NPR and it's like Fresh Air or one of those type of programs. For you, is there one out there that, whether you've done it or not, that would be like kind of the, the holy grail for you at book promotion? I mean, I'm still
2: a bit of a novice to this. Like, I I hear NPR and perhaps, uh, you know, one of the morning shows, I think, people tell me would be great to get on, uh, you know, Today or CBS This Morning or Good Morning America. Um, It's kind of funny, though. Like, last November, when this prediction came true, I actually was on NPR and I was on CBS This Morning. Um, You know, the book is not about the prediction. I mean, it is a little. Like, it's no surprise to you, Richard, I mentioned the prediction in the beginning. But it's a, it takes the story a lot further than that. So yeah, it would be great to get back on one of those shows and kind of present present this development to what's just a massive audience.
0: All right, Ben. Last one. And again, the book is Astro Ball: The New Way to Win It All. Go to Amazon. It you'll you will find it. Go to Ben Ryder's Twitter feed. Go to any bookstore at this point, major bookstore, and you will see it there. And I highly recommend it. It, you know, I'm sort of at times sort of, uh, you know. Uh, b- busting Ben's balls here, but the but I have great admiration for him, and um and the project that he did. I mean, uh, yeah, his bosses owe him a race. That cover story for SI is the cover story <laughs> that keeps on giving. Um, so the, I agree with that. Yeah, no kidding. The uh the last one, Ben, and that is, um, I think there'll be some people. There's a lot of young people who listen to this podcast. Young people who are uh who are in the um the business of media, certainly sports media. And do you have any advice for them, for those who eventually want to be authors? What, what, what for you um, is something as a first-time author that you really learned and that maybe you even wish that you knew prior to this entire project?
2: Huh? Well, I mean, I would say that I actually learned something from the Astros, from the way that they did it, and it's the idea of process over outcome right? Like it's a bit of a cliche, obviously, but that is how the Astros got from where they started to where they ended. They didn't focus on the ring at the end. They focused on each decision they made each and every day, um, almost in a vacuum. And then the accumulation of all of that work might or might not lead to success. That's really how I approached this entire book process. If I was just sitting there thinking about what it was going to be at the end the whole time, I would have never gotten it done. It was a matter of building it day by day by day. Um, and you really have to be disciplined, which is something that I was more disciplined on this than I ever have been before. I was actually talking to another former colleague of mine, Grant Wall, who uh, wrote uh, wrote his own book this year called Masters of Modern Soccer. It's a great book. I, when I was about to start writing, I said, Grant, how did you write a book like this so fast? He's like, well, I didn't think about the time period. I thought about each day. I gave myself a goal of 1,200 words a day uh, and I did that every day, and then at the end I had a book. That's essentially how I viewed it. I set my goal of 1,300 words a day to top grand a little bit because I think I had to write a little bit faster. But really, like, you, it's great to think about, oh, how the launch is going to be, how it's going to look like when you hold it in your hand. But as with anything, all that really matters is what you do each and every day to lead to that goal. So that would be kind of my main advice to people. You know, don't focus on the future. Focus on the present.
0: Good advice. By the way, did you call Grant Wall a former colleague or a current colleague? Did I miss it? Did I miss it? Uh, A former colleague of yours. Oh, a former colleague of mine. Okay. Of Glenn, I, I was like, wait. Forever. Yeah, I wasn't sure. Like, wait a minute. Did we? Uh, is, do, are we breaking news here? <laughs> did gone. we break? No, no. Grant's gonna be at SI forever, as am
2: I. Um, and we, we certainly miss you. Although it is nice to see that you've gotten a, you've gotten a bit nicer since you moved up to Canada, Richard. I really appreciate all the kind words you've sent yeah, you, in my you, direction.
0: I mean, uh, you know, socialism will do that for you, I guess. But um, <laughs> so yeah, it's also just it happens to be a very polite and nice country. All right. So Ben Ryder is the senior writer, uh, or is a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He is the author of Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All. And that book explores basically how the Astros remade their franchise and uh, are now uh, really one of the great franchises in in MLB and one of the favorites, I think, to win the show. It'd be great. To, it's gonna be the American League's gonna be incredible to see them go against the Red Sox and or the Yankees at a certain point in the playoffs. Ben, I wish you nothing but success on this book. It's already successful, so you have that. But uh, and don't uh, no bullshit here. Like, don't be afraid to keep promoting the hell out of it. You you, you have to be shameless when it's a product you believe in. And, um, and even when there are days you probably think like, man, I'm just over promoting this, no such thing. So, um, continued success and, uh, and hit up uh trainer and some other people to, so that they'll put you on the podcast, like their podcast, like I did, Ben, don't just, don't just give me the yeah, hard sell. Well, give Trina really And now that I, now that I have the Richard Deitz stamp of approval <laughs> yeah, to right.
2: continue to promote it, I certainly will.
0: Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome for those three sales. I just got you. All right. Ben Ryder is the author of Astro Ball. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio. I know this was a long podcast, but I, I really appreciate uh, people sticking around to the end. My thanks to Frank Isola for his uh, his incredible candor, to Clifton Brown for his really interesting story on Nerve Cross, and to Ben Ryder for giving us insight into how he um, how he put together his book and how he's putting together his book promotion. Previous podcasts prior to this include uh, Ryan Thompson, the wrestling podcaster extraordinaire and jim miller on espn um and then you can just basically go down the list of people who we've had on uh we were up to episode number uh 16 and you know from adam burke to Krista thompson joe tessitore uh verne lundquist cheryl reeve doris burke etc my thanks to lou pelgrino as always for producing this podcast thanks to cadence 13 this is richard deitch we'll see you again on the sports media podcast